Hello, TTB community, and welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Each episode, we like to bring you insight from travel authors, adventurers, conservationists, digital nomads, tour guides, and some of our own personal travel experiences. Joining me today is the very affable Robert Domena. Thank you, Elliot. So today we have Charles Vili. Valet. He is Valet, sorry. Uh, he is perhaps the most traveled person on the planet, uh, and he is the CEO of the most traveled people.com. This is a pretty awesome website that is relatively actually, it's pretty new to Elliot and myself, but it invites you as the traveler to create your own travel history and see how you stack up against other travelers. Now, one of the most awesome aspects of this site that we really dive into on the podcast is how it breaks down countries, regions by townships and autonomous zones and like little enclaves and islands. And so it's not just did you go to France, it's did you see this specific neighborhood in this small rural town in France, or did you go to this island off of the coast of France? So it, it, it really helps break it, like it, it adds layers to travel that I think was really enjoyable and, and the conversation was great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So before we get into it, though, the travel tip of the week is to create a travel savings account separate from your other savings account and put literally anything into it, even a dollar a month. And just by slowly putting money in and seeing that grow, it might motivate you to put a little bit more in and then really gauge what you can spend on travel per year and then build on that and build your trip around that. And I think it's just a good way to sort of organize your finances around travel. Uh, and lastly, before we get into the podcast, please just check out some of the cool things that we offer. How do you organize and plan your trip? So if you like to keep your trip organized like we do, you can use the travel journal and planner that we developed for our very own personal travel experiences. This will allow you to record things like the dates, the budget, the top destinations, the currency exchange rate, the time difference. It has a fillable calendar and it provides you the ability to write out your entire itinerary by the hour. In addition to that, it has a place to store reservation information, a packing list, a to-do list. And then at the very back, it offers you space to journal about your trip. You can find this travel journal planner on our products page, and once you download it, you have it forever, and you can reprint and refill it out for every trip you have moving forward. Now, if you do decide to purchase this, we encourage you to reach out to us with any tips to make it better. To help compile all of your info for the journal slash planner, we turned ourselves into cartoons to create a five-part video course that provides a step-by-step -step process to create the ultimate itinerary, including number one, navigation, number two, booking airfare, number three, blogs, research, and reviews, number four, itinerary building, and number five, safety, cultural norms, and thoughtful travel. The goal of this video tutorial is so that you can become your own personal travel agent and learn how to be plan efficient trips now and forever, all the while saving you money to splurge on a nice meal or first class seat for your next adventure. Yeah. And now, so if you still think that planning your trip is a little bit too much, or you just don't have time to sit down and actually do it, I can personally plan your trip for you using all the information that we just mentioned. If you're interested in this, please send me an email at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com or visit our service pages on our website, and we can meet over Zoom to discuss the details of your trip. You want to contribute to the podcast? If you work in the travel industry, you can join us for a travel roundtable discussion by submitting your information through the TAT form on our website. You can also send us a travel article via direct message or at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com for the monthly Travel Bites episode. 
Support us by wearing us. Go to redbubble.com to find awesome gear and merchandise of the Traveler's Blueprint. Some of the cost comes directly to us to help support the podcast. We definitely recommend the hoodie and the hat and maybe a sticker or travel mug. Whether you purchase a product from us or just want to learn about travel alongside us as we interview our guests, know that we greatly value your support as a listener of the show. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Charles, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Hey, thanks. It's uh, it's very good to be here on a Sunday, midday on a Sunday. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you, most traveled people, and you currently hold the first position on that. And you well, were. Well, well, I'm going to have to interrupt right there because Don Parrish is number one now. Oh, Don Parrish took it, and that that happened within a few days because I was just on your website on Friday, and you held the number one spot. Yeah, that's actually a a glitch. So. <laughs> We can we can get into that, but but no, Don and I have gone back and forth uh, many times over the years, and uh, you know he just got around to doing all the regions of Kazakhstan, which was uh, which was broken down a couple of years ago, and so it, we expect this to go back and forth. And he's a great guy; we're great friends. And I would never begrudge him this. Uh, also, he's uh, he's getting up there; he's seventy eight years old, so. That's uh, impressive. He really, he really deserves it. Well, I, I do really want to get into this because most of our listeners only are aware of most traveled people if they listen to our Dave Seminara podcast. And that's how we actually got in touch with you. And figuring out what most traveled people, MTP for short, uh, is, is kind of interesting because it's it really ranks different aspects of travel. And I guess there's 955 locations that you've kind of identified so rather than me trying to explain all this, you're the CEO and founder. So I want to let you kind of talk about your background, how you got into travel and how you came up with the most traveled people. Yeah, absolutely. I'll try to, I'll try to keep it brief, but it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a good story. So, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't able to travel as a kid. My, my family didn't have many resources and I really, I dreamed of travel and, always had an interest in geography uh, from collecting stamps. So, um, you know, the, the stamps changed in different regions over the years when countries became independent. Uh, and you could see which countries were aligned with which uh, European colonial powers over the years. And so it just all became very, very interesting to me. And so I dreamed of someday visiting all these places. Even when I was a kid um, and visiting my mother's farm in West Virginia, I would spend, you know, there's not, there wasn't much to do there on the farm. So I sat on the, in the driver's seat as a, like a six-year-old, um, couldn't even look over the windshield, but I had the Rand McNally road atlas open on the seat next to me. And so I was just looking down and steering the wheel as if I was doing a road trip. Uh, <laughs> so it was, uh, that, that was the kind of wanderlust that I had even, even back then. I think when I was two years old, I, I wandered away from the house and my, my parents found me like three blocks away. Oh, wow. <laughs> they were very, they were very scared, but I was always doing that sixth grade. I remember riding my bicycle and living in, in New Jersey. And I, I wound up in New York state at my, uh, at my aunt's house. And my, again, my family really was kind of freaked out. So um, <laughs> people are sort of used to me just, just going off on, on these trips, but anyway, so, 
uh, long story short, I, 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 did a, I did a bunch of travel during work. I, was a, I helped to found a software company uh, called MicroStrategy that went public in 1998. And so we expanded our offices during that time. And so I did a lot of travel, mostly around Europe. And um, then after we went public, I decided that, that you know, that's, that's kind of one of the things that I wanted to do um, was to learn five languages so that I could be like James Bond and I could show <laughs> up and like, order a drink and be really suave. Yeah. Where, <laughs> yeah. where I went. Those are, of course, European, uh, European orientations. So, so I started studying um, French and German and Italian through the Berkeley Extension School here in San Francisco. Um, I spoke Spanish and English pretty well already. Uh, but I realized real quickly that that was, that was just confusing me to try and study those things all at once and then not really practice during the rest of the week. So I got the brilliant idea of having a year abroad and I was newly married at the time. Uh, my, my wife uh, twisted her arm, she left work and we went off and lived for three months in France and then in Paris and then in Munich. And so the idea was to go to school uh, and learn the language and, and, uh, and then be out there experiencing it. So that really worked well in, in Paris, but I, I, I had gotten involved in around the world tickets. So we got around the world ticket to kind of catch her up with, with my travels. And as we were hopping around, I realized that I liked that. And I liked planning the, the around the world tickets a lot more than I liked going to school. Charles, can I stop you there for a second? Yeah, what please. is an around the world ticket? Oh, so around the world ticket, I don't know if people are doing them that much anymore. The, the product still exists with the major uh, airline alliances, but an around the world ticket is a single ticket through, uh, usually it's, it's through multiple carriers with, with a partnership. Um, and you start and end in the same country and you have to go in one continuous direction uh, or in one direction, clockwise or counterclockwise. Uh, and it's a, it's a special price. And it, you know, obviously contains quite a few segments. And I figured out that I could do that in first class for a better price than buying the individual segments in economy class. And wow. of course, you would you would get so I was traveling, I was traveling first, and there were a lot more three cabin aircrafts back then. So we're talking about, you know, the year 2000 to 2005 mostly. I probably did 25 round the world tickets. Oh, that's awesome. And, the best one, by the way, that I ever got was uh, 25 segments for around 39,000 miles and the to in first class, and the total was about 5,000 US dollars. What? Yes. What? So the, yeah, the prices depended, they varied depending on which country you actually purchased the ticket in. And that one was in India. So different, different years, I would buy them in South Africa, buy them in India, buy, buy them in Sri Lanka. And I, so the, the airline kind of kept the price list a secret and you'd have to go on flyer talk and, and sort, out, sort that out. And then they would make you stay a week in the place before you could buy it so that you weren't just flying in to scam them. So it, it was a whole, it was a whole deal. It was a whole deal. Wow. I, was really, I was focused on that. That's and really cool. So that's how I, that's how I got started with, um, just kind of more extensive uh, travel at the time. I had run in, you know, money from the IPO and and just wanted to you know, see the world. 
So there was no kind of rhyme or reason to it until, until I got a hold of an article uh, or I saw an article in the airline uh, flight and airline magazine, in-flight magazine, about the TCC, which is the Travelers Century Club, mm-hmm. which is a U.S.-based organization. Uh, and you should have visited 100 places on their list in order to join, right? And okay. so uh, people have been asking me, how many countries have you been to? And that's, you know, that's one of the things that MTP tries to address is that when you're going for the 193 UN countries, which is what most people do, that really kind of just scratches the surface of all the land area in the world. And the, the example I like to use is, is uh, French Polynesia, where Tahiti is the opposite side of the world from France. But if you uh, just use the UN list, then they're the same thing. And then you realize that France has, you know, has, has dependencies and territories and, and um, all over the world in, in, in every continent. And, uh, and so there, you know, the U.S. has Puerto Rico, Denmark has Greenland, and you just start getting into the slippery slope of all these things. And I said, someone, you know, someone should make a list. And that's how I found the TCC list. And that got me started really trying to tick boxes on a list. That's really wow. interesting. Yeah, that's, it, it makes sense. It's something that I've been conscious of, you know, even coming to, or for people that come to the United States, I'm on Facebook groups and things where people are traveling to the United States and they say, uh, what should I do? I'm coming to the United States. What should I do? <laughs> it's like, where are you going? Are you going to New York City? Because if you go to New York City, it's drastically different than if you go to Montana, different countries in a way, like almost, you know? Yeah. And so, why and so yeah and that translates to other countries around the world um and and so in in my mind when i would travel somewhere to a different country like if i travel to to france i don't necessarily say france i say paris like i went to paris right uh well yeah that's different from saying i went to kerguelen island which is a remote (laughs) very very remote island with one ranger station and and mostly inhabited by penguins in the middle of the south of indian ocean that's different from paris yeah. right france has a lot of those actually yeah yeah they have wow. they have a, they have a lot of those little islands throughout the world and, and cool. so your travels transitioned right so your travels transitioned from paris and munich with your girlfriend at the time or was it was were you already we were married, married. you were we married, married. Now, um, my, now my ex-wife and my baby mama so the, our kids are now 18 <laughs> 18 16 and 14 okay 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 so so those are pretty easy countries but i know that by going through your website you're kind of chasing more of the, the obscure or, or you were for a while can you take us through some of your own obscure travel experiences just curious to hear some of the the, the more uh, like a culture that you visited that was yeah well let me let me let me tell you how how some of those things um, came to be on sure. the list first because my you know as I, I so I, I I was pursuing that TCC list which was about three hundred and twenty four and then it switched to three hundred twenty seven so substantially more than the UN one hundred ninety three and it had those things like Puerto Rico and Greenland and. And um, so it was, a, it was, it seemed like a challenging list at the time. And then I thought about, well, uh, I had seen Guinness was, had done a world record for this. And it turns out they hadn't published it since the year 2000. 
and then they had sort of backed out of it, but I found their list was different. And it had 14 items that were um, challenging and just different. And so that was the kind of first hint to me that TCC, the emperor had no clothes, or at least didn't have all the clothes. Yeah. You know, and um, <laughs> so I said, well, <coughs> I have to do these other things to try and get into Guinness. Um, all right, well, well, we'll do that. And then I, I actually passed the guy who had previously been in Guinness, um, a guy named John Klaus, who was a six foot six divorce lawyer from Evansville, Indiana. We had a very memorable evening out together that was <laughs> covered in the local uh, press there. Uh, since passed away, but a, a really good guy. Anyway, I, so I, when I went to Bouvay Island, I um, surpassed him and Guinness had said, okay, we're all set. I had a meeting with Guinness in London and they said, we're all set. We were ready to put you into the 2005 um, Guinness Book of World Records. Um, but, but hold on, we're not able to do this ourselves. We're not qualified to adjudicate this. Uh, we need a legitimate international organization to do this. And so I would have been following the TCC and the chairman had supported me. He wrote the letter. And so that sort of lined everything up for Guinness. Um, but then the TCC board voted, oh, well, we can't, you know, Charles sort of came out of nowhere and we can't really support anything like this because we don't, we don't check people's travel either. So they said, they voted no. And so that's kind of scotched the whole, the whole Guinness thing. So that's how, that's how I came up with MTP, the concept in the first place. Because I was frustrated that, that uh, I'd gone through all of this and it's like I, I had said it was like running a marathon in the Olympics. And then you get into the stadium for the final lap and found all the, the judges had gone home. Yes. <laughs> there, was just, there was just sort of no one there. So I was a software guy and I said, well, let, you know, let's make a database of people and places. Yeah. Um, and then and let's make it more comprehensive because I learned that there was a lot more out there than just what's on TCC. So. So you can you can register like anybody can register for MTP. Anyone, anyone can sign up. You just have to, you know, want to want to travel to a lot of places and go through the exercise of ticking off the places that you that you've actually been. But, but just back on your question of how these obscure things got in. So that's kind of long winded way of, of telling you how MTP came about. But then as I looked at what what really constituted the land area of the world, um, another group the ham radio enthusiasts, so they're called hams. They are very technical people. They like, you know, they set up radios to try and communicate to every land area on earth. So they have a very kind of geographics, uh, scientific way of, of splitting the world out. And what that means is there are a lot of islands and island groups that they recognize that these other places just would rather ignore because they're difficult to get to. But as I, as I had started, they exist. And there's a lot of wildlife and they're difficult to get to and you can't just ignore them. So I incorporated their list in and that's where some of the more difficult places came in to the list. So, yeah. what, so that is, list, that what list, is the list at now? I think it's 1,100, just over 1,100. Uh, and I've done 1,000 and uh 20 something actually i just i just finished a few more in uh iran 
And okay. um, actually, I should know. <laughs> I should know. look it up. Look it up for you. Something like um, like 10, 10, 26 out of eleven oh five. Let's say. Okay. Yeah, and I saw that you have Isle Margarita left in the Caribbean it, for the TCC. That's right. So that that came on. So I was the youngest person ever to complete the TCC. Um, at the time, I was like um, 35 or, or 37. Um, but since then, they added Isla Margarita. Okay. And, um, and so I just haven't, I, I made it one effort a couple of years ago to get a Venezuelan visa, which is kind of an adventure in and of itself. Mm. I, I flew to Ottawa in the middle of the winter and then uh, made the mistake of FedExing my materials right before Christmas. Oh. and wrote on the wrote on the address venezuelan embassy and so uh so fedex confiscated that and, oh, really? uh, yeah <laughs> opened it up and confiscated and then sent it back to my california address so uh, uh, uh so that that's on hold now you have to go to the to the uh, embassy in mexico to get a venezuelan visa so i'll get around to that uh, and, and, and go back and do that at some point. Yeah, this is all interesting. So do you have to, as, as a person that's part of MTP now, I'm part of the community and I'm starting to check things off, do you do people need to like upload certain documentation that they've reached these places or is it all on our system? It's not all on our system, uh, but, they're, but you know, I don't want to put too much friction in the process and force people to, you know, pe but people should be on notice that they can be called out at any time. So what usually happens is it's kind of a self-policing system where people notice because they really they really care about this and they will notice their neighbors in the rankings. And if if someone kind of appears out of nowhere and all of a sudden has checked off a bunch of things that don't really make logistical sense, you know, like I I, I like I. I check off all those remote Indian Ocean islands that belong to France, but I don't check off the island of Reunion, which is there where the ship is based off, which is the only way to get there. Things like that, where people who actually been really know and they spot this and they say, aha, this is a fraudster. Um, and they do, a, you know, whistleblowing. Uh, and then, then at that point, I will reach out and put out a set of questions to verify. And then a lot of these people just poof, go away. Okay. Um, and some of them argued for a while, but I, I've had to, I've had to uh, extensive uh, conversations with some people and had to kick them off, including people very, very high up who claim to be very high up. So, um, but it's, it seems the self-policing seems to, uh, seems to work because people, people who do, who are legitimate do take it very seriously. Yeah. I would imagine. Is this all for bragging rights? Uh, is uh, some people, some people like to promote themselves. Um, you know, it's difficult to really promote yourself when there's so many good travelers out there. But um, I think it's mostly for for, and it should be for personal satisfaction, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's something I learned because over the years I've been um, positioned by the media as you know as this is all very competitive and let's make it into a story for you know me against don Parrish, for example and um i think i was one of the first people to really try and downplay that because it just it didn't bring anything good to the to the community and it got people's tempers really really riled up um even though i was a very competitive person and that drove me for for a while 
I realized that this is really, um, people travel differently. And this is really a competition with yourself of, you know, what can you accomplish given your own resources, your own desires? Um, you know, how much are you willing to stick with it and, and, and go for? And that's really your own, it's your own business. And this is just a, you know, it's a scoreboard, but it's also, it's more of a font for ideas because I don't think anyone will ever complete this list. Um, but there's always, it gives people a lot of motivation that there's something else out there to do. Yeah. Why don't you think anybody will complete the list? There is just some places which are, no, so, you know, that being said, someone, someone may go ahead and do it, but there are places like Scott Island, where I think only, uh, which is a very remote Antarctic Island, belongs to New Zealand. And because of the ice conditions, I think only six people in history have landed on it. Oh, um, wow. So that, there are just some very, very difficult places. John Klaus that I mentioned, his ultimate frustration was with Bouvet Island, Bouvet being the most remote island in the world, um, and also in the South Atlantic. And he traveled there three times, and all three times he could, I mean, not all three, but he could see it, but couldn't land on it because the conditions were too bad. Wow. There's, there's a lot of people that have gone there trying and, and have been <coughs> uh, unable to land. So it's just a lot of these places are very difficult and you, you just can't, no one has unlimited resources. Like Elon Musk is not trying to go and do this. Right, yeah. right, right. So, Maybe, so it is possible. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, sure, it's possible. It, 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 it is possible to complete the list. It's tantalizing. Right. It's it's out there, and so people who are you know resourceful, competitive, um, and overachievers want to. So yeah. That's what makes it. That's what makes it so much fun. But it's really a lifetime. It's a lifetime pursuit. Yeah. A, a lot talking... of a lot of a lot of people these days um, take on the the one ninety three as their sort of lifetime project. Mm -hmm. uh, that which being the. 193 countries of the UN. Um, and a good friend of mine, David Yang, for example, just finished that yesterday. He arrived in Venezuela. So we're all saying, hooray, David Yang. Um, but he's, you know, he's restless and is always going to be looking for the next thing. And yeah. so he's already in his mind moved on to uh, MTP list and, and some other goals that he has in mind. So um, what, 193 is sort of the starting point for most people. But more and more people are finishing that like the level of communication and and uh access to information is and uh, and the visa regimes are much easier than they used to be I and mean, covid put a break on on people but uh you can get so many more visas on arrival than than you used to okay. so back in my yeah. day yeah, you had to deal. you had to i had to have like a guy full-time at the visa service working you know every fedex one passport in and He'd send the other one back with certain visas that I was working on, so I would have those in time. And and uh, now it's a now it's just a lot easier. So people are people are doing it more readily, but still, I don't think anyone's gonna complete the MTP list. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, I <laughs> yeah, I'm Scott, curious. This Scott Island is really remote, and is it really yeah. just like it? There's no one that actually lives on Scott Island. Oh no, no. Several, a lot of these places are are uninhabited by people. Um, and so some people would say, oh, well, that's, you know, that's worthless. 
but it's land area on earth and you can't really ignore it. And there's also, there's always wildlife at any of these places, yeah. uh, whether it's seals or penguins or, um, or, or fish. I mean, Clipperton Island, Clipperton Island is off the coast of Mexico and it belongs to France. And it's got a storied history where so many people who tried to live on there all died or they went crazy or both but there's no one living there now. Um, however, the sea life is, it's probably the best tuna fishing in the world. And we, and scuba diving there, you see that it's a, that it's a huge paradise for, for uh, underwater, whereas it's just deadly above water. So um, all these places have some unique history or value and, um, so that you have to respect them and, and, and you know, try and land on that. Whether or not it's so too difficult, it's on, it's on the list because it's part of Earth. Yeah, <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, I saw that Scott Island, of the individuals that are listed and registered on MTP, only 47 people have visited. Uh, and so some of those are, I mean, I can't go and... and, and uh, check, yeah. Check to everyone. And, and probably they, many of those people think that it's a different... Scott Island. I mean, there's a few places called Scott Island around the world. I think one's in Canada. Yeah. Uh, okay. This is the the one which is impossible to get to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Empire quotes. It's Air not. Quotes. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, uh, uh, but I think this is really interesting because we had this conversation with Dave about this this checklist and ticking things off as a traveler, and I think there's there's an allure to that as young not necessarily in like in terms of age young, but in terms of how new they are to travel, to just go to a country, check the box and say they've been there and then never go back and say, oh yeah, I've been to Mexico, but they haven't been to all these other parts or they've been to France, but they were actually only on a small, like the French Polynesian Island. And he brought up a really good point that I think this list, you're right, it's about, it's about feeling good for yourself to say, okay, I, I have these, but it's also about generating ideas of things to go see because other people have seen them and they're places that you may not have even mm -hmm. thought of. Right. And they're really obscure. It's not something that you may find in Lonely Planet or one of your standard map atlases. And I really, I really like that. And it took me, took me aback a bit because I'm not necessarily a huge fan of saying, all right, I, I got to check all these places off my list before I die. It's a real geography lesson. And, um, when I was when I was doing it uh, again back in my day, we didn't have Wikipedia, yeah. <laughs> so, and um, and and yeah, you were looking at actual atlases. Google Maps wasn't very good uh, yet either, um, so it was uh, it was a real challenge to get information on anyone that's been to some of these places and get ideas on on how to go there. So, I would I would say that I probably helped um, at least start the flow of information and get people excited about doing more and more things. Um, and, and, and you, you see people going, you know, to the enclave of Livia in, which is, which is a Spanish town that that's inside of France, uh, and, and writing about it. You know, I see, I see posts. I saw a post yesterday, extremely articulate traveler, Lily Echeverria wrote, wrote about it. And no one ever knew about it before I put it on a list. Uh, and, and so I, it gives me huge satisfaction that this movement uh, has has taken off, but it really just was a 
a desire to reflect the land area of the world and all those kind of different piece parts. Uh, and then as for the mentality of, of just checking off a box, I think that's really kind of a maturity issue. Mm -hmm. uh, I started off that way because uh, the TCC rules at the time allowed things like an airport transfer. You could, uh, you could check the box and never get out of the plane. And, um, you know, and I thought that was okay. I since went back and, you know, corrected all of those immature actions that I, um, <laughs> you know, unwise things that I did done in my youth. Uh, but, but so people will do that and then realize over time that uh, they're missing out themselves. And so that's why I say this is a, this is more of a personal journey than a competitive one, because you, if you're just checking off boxes uh, and we can get into Cassie P calls and some of the, you know, people who have been criticized for that, uh, it, it, you, you will, you will not be satisfied yourself if, if that's all you're if that's all you're doing yeah right right but, but that, that being said and with mtp like i can't make any qualitative judgments on how long you have to stay or what activity you have to do because in paris it's different than some remote island where you're not even allowed allowed to land potentially for wildlife concerns um so there's no one size fits all i just say what's well, it a legal visit you know, what, did you go through immigration if you were supposed to? And, uh, you know, did you stand with both feet on the place if you were allowed to stand there? You can't just fly over it or or look at it from a distance. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard a few funny ways of doing that. I've heard you have to have a meal in the place. You've had to take in a poop in the place. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Usually granted <laughs> by a meal. <laughs> these are, you know, these are personal... <laughs> yeah these are all these are all personal uh uh preferences like you yeah. know what if you have constipation when you go with that particular <laughs> right day? right and you right. and you only have a one hour window <laughs> what are you going to do stand there squatting for the whole hour how do you how do you address more dangerous places and and immediately this might be silly but like somewhere like north sentinel island or remote regions of the Brazilian rainforest where you have these uh, these really um, non-contacted tribes or or the Middle East um, where right, well, we haven't been able to go for decades yeah that then that brings up a that brings up another good point but so just because it's dangerous and I mean any, any place can be dangerous uh, but it doesn't mean that it's not part of the earth so Mm. You have to, as a traveler, make your own judgments of whether, you know, whether today's the right day to go there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, when I first tried to go to the Gaza Strip, the Israeli military told me this is not the day that you're going to go there <laughs> and, you know, and, st and stop me. And maybe that was in, in my own best interest. I wasn't too happy about it on the day, but, um, you know, it, it, that's, that's a factor in, in travel. It's just one of many environmental factors, but um, it, I, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell people when to go. It's just a question of whether you whether you did. Um, but so, uh, let's get back to Cassie Picol's. I think that's her her last name. But so, Guinness these days is actually recognizing a couple of records for 193. And I think she at the time was the youngest or the fastest uh, woman to go through and do 193. But she was doing 
a lot of airport turnarounds and she was famous for taking the plane to Tuvalu, uh, going through immigration and then boarding again, getting right back on the same plane and checking it off that way. Um, so there was some criticism for, for that. But the big problem that I have with, with her and, and a couple others who have been through that way through the Guinness track is that Guinness is recognizing uh, Golan Heights, which is really Israeli occupied and separate geographically from Syria. They're recognizing that as Syria. And they, they said, well, Syria is too dangerous. So just go to Golan Heights and we'll count that. And then similarly, they said, uh, North Korea is too difficult and dangerous. So go stand in the DMZ, which is a thing you can do from the South Korean side, but that's not getting a visa and going into North Korea. So I just call bullshit on, on any Guinness records these days, especially with my own experience, knowing how sort of thinly resourced uh, Guinness is. I just think that's a bad decision and a bad um, example, you know, to say that that's okay to people. Yeah. So these people haven't been to Syria and they haven't been to North Korea because someone said, oh, that's too dangerous. So go somewhere else and just right. safer and call it, you know, we'll just kind of wink our eyes and, and call it that. Right. Right. And I, I do know North Korea, you can get into. I've seen travel influencers, quote unquote, oh, yeah. go there often, almost. You yeah, know. No, when I, well, not right now because they're having, they're finally admitting they have a pandemic. So, right, right. Um, so, but, for example, when I went first in 2005, uh, they had been closed for five years. And so um, at the head of the TCC at the time called me and said, hey, we just found out there's a flight opening up. And I, I jumped on it. I said, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm there. Um, so yeah, it, and, and even since then, they expanded quite a number of routes that you can do. It's all heavily minded. So it's, it, it is kind of a kabuki theater um, but at least you're inside, you know, it is what it is and you're inside. Yeah. So, um, it's not definitely going to South Korea and then viewing and going to an attraction where you stand in the building that's on the line and you walk to one side of the, inside the building and say, aha, I walk around right. the table. I'm in North Korea. It's, yeah. it's, it's not it. Yeah. It, it's part of uh, most traveled people, I think there are, you guys have expanded the, the list over the years. And since it started in 2005, right. it's been 17 yeah. years running now. Does the community provide input and then vote on potential new destinations that should be included in the list? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's exactly the way we did it at the start. Uh, I wanted to make it a democracy so people wouldn't say that this is just my, you know, my list for my own personal promotion. Um, and what I and so there was this whole system of nomination and um, and then voting, and what happened was the democracy kind of got out of control because people all voted in their own self-interest to split up European countries, which was sort of the easiest way to add numbers mm. to your to your own total. So they wouldn't add any you know a remote thing that legitimately should be part of the list, but they would divide Switzerland into 23 cantons 
because it's really easy to go around Switzerland and add yeah. 22 to your total then. So that that's, the voting was tending in that direction and it got sort of unwieldy and was sort of sliding out of control with just dividing these countries. So I put it on pause for, for quite a while. Um, and so now I, I, uh, I adapt every uh, New Year's and I take suggestions. Um, I take, take suggestions during the year from people uh, which I really, which I really do follow and take into account. And then we've been dividing up countries, but they're the largest countries by land area, so that we don't have this imbalance of, you know, just the European countries divided. So that's okay. how Kazakhstan came about. They added, you know, something like um, fifteen or, or no, added uh, I think twenty-two items to the list, and that's how you know I and I. I went around Kazakhstan earlier than Don Parrish did. So that's how yeah. Don Parrish finally got around to that and uh, surpassed me again. Cause he's done, he's done it quite a few difficult places that I haven't, uh, that I haven't been to. Okay. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing guy. You should get him on the show as well. Yeah, definitely be reaching out. I, I'm going through, oh, it, it is fascinating how some of these countries are broken down. I'm just maximizing so many of these lists. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You guys are, are you guys staring at the list now? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you're talking, um, yeah. I'm, 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 no, I did notice and we talked about time. this a little bit with Dave as well, is that uh I think the the first female that is in the top is at number twenty eight and she's Russian sixty-three. And I guess just the the natural order of how travelers end up going about this is that there's a lot of individual male travelers. Is that because it's just easier in terms of internationally traveling? I think so. Um, yeah, I think I think you know historically it's been it's been a bit easier um, to be a to be a traveler like this. Um, I would say by and large, people don't have families. Uh, the fewer home ties that you have, the easier it is to get around, um, and so kind of single males would 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 rise and and there would be more of those more represented um and i think historically so this is very really a long lifetime count you know accomplishment and it's only more recently that more and more i think um there's been more and more resources for single female travelers or or for female travelers to be going together it didn't happen as much uh, earlier on so i'd say they're catching up and they're on the rise okay uh but if you look at these long-term lifetime uh accomplishments it's just historically the de the deck had been probably stacked against the, the the women a bit more and um a bit easier for the for the men okay but yeah no, i mean no less uh, obviously you know, my um, my girlfriend Riza Rasco is closing in on her 193 right now, and you know some of the things that she's overcome. She's very very resourceful and tough, and so um, you know some areas of the world are just more difficult than others for for single female travelers. Yeah, yeah. You really just have to respect anyone that has um, any anyone male or female that's gone through even 193. Um, you know, but, but anyone who's moved beyond up to the upper echelons of MTP, that's, that's really extraordinary. I, I'm seeing now 
there are toddlers that have visited yeah. hundreds of places. I'm assuming that are the children <laughs> yeah. of, of some yeah. of these well, yeah. I mean, heavily traveled people. Technically on MTP, you're not allowed to be uh, under 18. Um, but there are, there are, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was just, uh, I was just with the top uh, ranking traveler, female traveler in Denmark. And she was with her 19 year old um, daughter, who's absolutely fascinating and, and even more fascinating because she's been to over a hundred countries now. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, it's, if you're able to travel with children, uh, then it's, I think it's really, really good for the children. It's, yeah. it's not easy. It's, it's expensive. You know, mm -hmm. that's an extra airline ticket as soon as they're two years old. It makes it twice as exciting. I had three kids. And so I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it that way. Yeah. That's a lot. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, just, even for, just financially, you can't, um, go to all these, go to all these places. Some people, they, they'll get a sailboat and do the sailing trip for the year. A French people do that. Yeah. And then the French government gives them, uh, re remote educational materials. And, and so they have their school sort of the, the government official school on board. Um, so there are, there are different ways to support that, but hats off to anyone who can do that. Yeah, really. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's impressive, especially, I mean, Bob and I are both from the United States, and as are you, I think it's, it's harder in the U.S. because we don't value travel as much as certain other countries do. I, yeah, I, well, I don't, it's just not as easy to go to so many uh, different countries as if you were based in Europe, for example. Yeah. yeah. And, you, and also, we have a very sort of ethnocentric worldview, um, and we're not as dependent on the countries around us, whereas uh, pretty much anywhere else you live, you're very cognizant of your neighbors uh, and and the cultural differences there. And so you appreciate going from one to the other. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just different being from being from yeah. here. Yeah. Well, well, Charles, I with with the amount of travel you've done, uh, I really want to hear some of your stories. Uh, you've seen a lot. You've done a lot. I, I really don't know how you want to go about this. If you want to just give some of your, you know, your favorite travel experiences, uh, if you want to talk about people you've met, um, but yeah, or most memorable, had, good or bad general insight. Yeah. I mean, where, what really stands out to you as, as some of your more significant travel experiences? Sure. Well, the, um, <clears throat> you know, a couple, couple things jumped to mind. Um, Bouvet, we had mentioned, Bouvet was kind of a holy grail and it still remains a holy grail for a lot of people. Um, I was, I got there a little bit differently than other people uh, have. And so I was very fortunate. Um, and it goes to, you know, this, this being determined and wanting to plan in advance. So, so Bouvet belongs to Norway um, or is claimed by, by Norway, uh, but it's, it's right south of south africa so it's a thousand miles south of south africa another thousand miles to antarctica and then the nearest inhabited uh place is tristan de cunha which is also just about a thousand miles away but that's the most remote inhabited island on earth so wow. i say if you go to the most inhabited most remote inhabited island and there's still a thousand miles to go to get to this place then you know it's pretty far <laughs> yeah um but so <clears throat> I was in South Africa 
on another trip to Antarctica and there was a reception. This was actually with the Russians flying in the, into a Russian uh, ice field uh, in Antarctica. And it was the first time they were doing that. So they had this whole reception and the deputy head of the South African Antarctic program was there. And he said, hi, I'm Sam and I'm a fan of the San Francisco Giants. I said, well, Sam, we're, we're, we're friends then. <laughs> uh, and, and I, you know, I told him about what I was doing and we just met at this sort of cocktail party. And then within the next year, Sam reached out to me and said, so on our, our vessel, the uh, MV Agulhas, which is the, the little red boat that could, uh, which is, that's their vessel that goes down there every year to Antarctica and brings all the scientists and uh, they do all their experiments, brings them down to the base. Uh, he said, this year, we are going to be doing one of our stops at Bouvet uh, because the Norwegians have contracted us to do something. And so it's going. Do you want to try and see if we can get you on? I said, yes. And then it came down to this kind of high wire negotiation to get permit with uh, with the Norwegian Polar Institute in Tromsø, Norway. Uh, and so I was up in the middle of the night one night while they from from San Francisco while they uh, did this negotiation and so they, they finally gave in and and said well we won't deny him permission so that opened the door and I flew I flew over and I was up in the middle of the night because my first daughter had just been born so this was a big deal whether to leave for three months and she's one month old and my wow. wife at the time said well this is it you I mean you have to do this this is Bouvet. Um, that's how big this 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 becomes. Wow. So, um, so I went I went and was on. I was the first and only passenger. I don't know if I ruined it for every, for everyone else, but no one's been invited back since. Um, <laughs> uh, and was aboard for seventy two days. Whoa! Where did and it leave from? From Cape Town. Okay. Okay. From from, from Cape Town and. <clears throat> Uh, landed, so it didn't land on Bouvet. Obviously, you can't land a boat on Bouvet. It's sheer cliffs, and uh, and this, the winds are averaging over fifty miles an hour all the time. So we we had helicopters, and that's how we got to land up on the on the top on the plateau. And uh, it was it was dicey. It was really dicey. Like they had to keep the blades, the helicopters running at an angle. Uh, against the wind to let us to let us out and so these um they had some tasks to do and they you know they just didn't let me get close to them so i you know wandered among the wildlife for three hours on bouvet and then and then it was 66 67 more days while they went down to their base in antarctica we went all across the south atlantic ocean dropping weather buoys we landed on South Thule Island, which is the southernmost of the South Sandwich Islands. Okay. Another one that hardly, it, it was been pivotal in the Falklands War. And so there was some fascinating history there. We landed in these little like Teletubby wetsuits, <laughs> <laughs> these like floating, floating ball wetsuits. And we landed and I saw where the Argentinians had been building up, a, they actually built up a runway uh, on this very mountainous island 
It was hidden from the British and the British bombed it. And you see the bomb craters and you see the place where the Argentinians put their flag. Then the British put their flag on this flagpole. What? But no one ever lands there. You know, maybe once every three years, someone will, someone will land there. And so that British flag, the Union Jack was on the ground and it was being nested on by penguins. It's just like penguins are very dirty birds. So I mean, yeah. I, I'm all for the British and you know the traditions and I respect the Union Jack, but some of these places, they can't be conquered. Yeah. They can't be conquered and the penguins will take, <laughs> will take over eventually. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah, and we got stuck in ice for two weeks, so it was quite a, quite an adventure. And I was um, I was almost when we got back to Cape Town, I was almost scared or freaked out by society of, of all these people walking around. Yeah, the fact that I could put a card into a machine and get money out uh, on the street it was just wow. It took a little readjustment. Yeah. Reverse culture society. shock. Yeah, after after all that, and the the um, by the way, they wouldn't let me off the boat onto the. I made friends with everybody, especially the Air Force guys who were doing the flying, because um, I I used to fly in the Air Force for the U.S. But uh, they they wouldn't the expedition leader wouldn't let me off the boat because he was scared that uh, the UN inspectors would find this you know foreigner and and he'd get in trouble. So I, I, I had to stay on during those whole 72 uh, days. Wow. What was it like getting back onto the like solid earth? You know, whenever you're, whenever you're at sea for a while, you have uh, land legs, uh, which means that either the land feels wobbly, uh -huh. you know, to you. So, but that, that, that you overcome in a day or two. And it was more the, in a reintegration into uh into yeah. the real world that took a took a little while like just having restaurants with anything that you want like i can walk over here and get this whole other cuisine yeah when you're used to being uh, on the ship it's all you know after a while there's nothing fresh it's all canned goods and it's sort of the same thing over and over well, i'm curious on a tri on a long trip like that do they bring all of the food from the beginning of the trip or are there stops along the way to resupply <clears throat> No, not on, on one like that. Of course, you're bringing the supplies to the Antarctic base. So they'll okay. start with some fresh food as, you know, just to have a treat. But the fresh vegetables go pretty quickly. So you, you, you get down to a lot of canned meats. Um, everything in cans basically are frozen. Um, but the, yeah, the ship stores are full, full with that. And then it's a, it's a challenge for the kitchen to try and keep some sort of variety. You know, it turns into like a elementary school cafeteria uh, pretty quickly. I imagine. Uh, I'd probably get tired of that pretty quickly. Uh, so another one, which so there, there are two. I don't want to just do remote islands, but I'll tell you the story about uh, Peter the First Island, which is the other one claimed by Norway. It's the other one that's kind of more most difficult. Uh, well, obviously not as difficult as Scott Island, but it's one of those in that category. And it's funny, these are both claimed by Norway. I think no one else really wanted them, even though they're very, very far away from Norway near Antarctica. So Peter the First Island, um, 
is you need a helicopter really to land there too. It's one of these with with uh, sheer walls, sheer cliffs. Um, we actually almost killed ourselves uh, taking a Zodiac one day and trying to, with, with the crew trying to land, we flipped the Zodiac and, and uh, nearly sank. Um, but anyway, I was with a, I was with, eventually I got there with the ham radio group. So these ham radio guys are <laughs> wow. really, really, uh, they're really into it. Yeah. They want to put, put these places, quote unquote, on the air. So they set up these expeditions. These guys raised almost a million dollars. And um, there was a group of, uh, I think, 20 or so. And they set up their, uh, a whole village on Peter the First Island that was all brought by helicopter sling loads off, the, uh, off of the ship. And they used uh, pallets for the flooring and they set up tents and then they set up a whole range of big antennas and then they had a schedule for people to call in and they would say, yes, you're connected. Yes, you're connected. Yes, you're connected. And all these things get logged. And then afterwards they send out little postcards that say, you know, here's your souvenir. Wow. Thanks for playing. Um, but so these, these are, these are pretty intense geeky guys. And uh, they had, I had sort of joined on to the expedition three years prior when it was in developmental phase. And for two years, they had false starts, including, so you leave for most Antarctic uh, voyages, you don't leave from the Cape Town side, you leave from Ushuaia, which is the end of Argentina. Okay. Um, that's where, that's where most Antarctic cruises go because it just faces the Antarctic Peninsula. So it's this, yeah. the shortest passage there. Um, so we were going out of Ushuaia and uh, at the last second, the boat didn't show up on time. And the whole team had gathered down there and we had had a false start the year before. So I said, I said um, uh, to Bill, no, Bob, I said to Bob often, uh, Bob, are you sure? I'm not going to leave San Francisco until you're sure. And he said, yeah, I'm sure. And so I, I went San Francisco, Miami, Miami, Buenos Aires. And even in Miami, he said, we're sure. In Buenos Aires, my connection was too tight, so I didn't get a chance to talk to him. This is before you had Wi-Fi in flight. And I landed in Ushuaia, and he greeted me at the airport with this big, sad, sad look on his face. Oh. No, the boat, the boat's not, it has a problem. It's not going to make it. And with that, they had run out of their weather window to, to safely do the expedition. So that, had, that was the last oh. day. They'd been kind of lingering for two weeks. Um, so I had to turn around and uh, fly back. I spent an extra day in, in Buenos Aires and, and I got mugged in the streets of Buenos Aires to add insult to injury. The guys at that, that time I wore a Rolex watch and the guy ripped my Rolex watch off and went and hopped on his buddy's moped oh, and away. So I was like, I learned not to wear watches anymore. And um, that was sort of a low point. But then the next year, it's like Charlie Brown or like, uh, yeah, Charlie Brown was the football. Yeah. Next year, we really kicked that football and uh, <laughs> made it. Uh, however, however, towards the end there, 
uh, because I wasn't a radio guy, I just tried to make myself useful. And so I stayed on the boat, but I joined the helicopter crew. So they, uh, so I would help with all the sling loads and um, got to go and land uh, many, many times as the helicopter went back and forth. Uh, and, and so sling load is a big uh, net full of gear that the helicopter just picks up off the deck and then transports and drops it down. So you need uh, four people to help with that. And uh, I was the fourth. So that was really fun until we were cleaning up everything and finishing up the expedition. So there were 60 sling loads and we had done 55 of those. And then the weather closed. And so all the people were out and most of the stuff was out off the island. In Antarctica, you have to clean up everything. You can't, uh, any, yeah. any mess you make, you have to clean it up and bring it back. And so we were there with just a bit of stuff and the weather closed in and the helicopter pilot refused to fly anymore uh, indefinitely because he's, the visibility wasn't good enough to see the ground. It's all white. Yeah. And, and so he didn't, he wasn't the greatest Antarctic pilot. It was his first time. So we were left there, myself and three Chilean guys, Navy, uh, sailors, um, and we were there for about 24 hours. On the island. On the island wow. and with very limited stuff. So we, we took some of those pallets and made a makeshift shelter and all just kind of cuddled in there like elephant seals. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's probably pretty memorable. Yeah, so I, I and, and their radios all went out. So mine was the only radio that continued to work. I was very lucky, thank God, to my Spanish teachers over the years that I spoke Spanish because the, the ship's crew uh, didn't speak English very well. We were radioing back and forth with the ship. So I was sort of like translating to the other guys with me and translating between the ship's crew and our expedition guys. Um, we, and we finally, we finally did get uh, picked up after the ship repositioned to the other side of the island, but it was really scary. Like I didn't know what was gonna, what was gonna happen. As on a lighter note, um, one of the guys snored so loudly, he was kind of the big heavy guy that he had been on the ship. They, they made him sleep outside on the ship in the, <laughs> within the ship's hospital because no one could stand him. So he was snoring inside of that shelter. And I joked to the guys, oh, I hear the helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, all's, all's well that ends well, but that was, a, that was another pretty hairy one. Yeah, so they ended up coming after the weather cleared. Yeah, it cleared enough. Um, and then uh, we, we, we realized that the guy was coming and these guys had like three matches left and a bunch of toilet paper. And they went and outside and burned all the toilet paper to make the flame. And the helicopter guy said that that's what he saw in oh, wow. a new zone in on us because of that. Wow. That was smart thinking. Yeah, I was like, don't burn all, you know, those <laughs> yeah, are all our only matches. And it turned out that it was one shot and it worked. Yeah. Man, that's incredible. H have you done things like climb? To the top of Everest, and you know, uh, no, no, um, okay. that's that's TBD. Um, 
I'm trying to think, you know, I haven't summited any, any huge mountains. Um, just hasn't been, hasn't been a thing. So it's not uh, necessarily, so you're not really going for like adventures. You're not, uh, you know, trying to, to kayak the entire Colorado river or you're not looking to do these incredible feats of adventurism. It's really, and, and which makes it more appealing to the common traveler because you don't need to have this exceptional athleticism or training, uh, right. which requires a tons of tons of resources in and of itself. So you really just need to be able to get there. You need right? to be able That's to the get there. You need, you need to be able to get along with people enough that, mm-hmm. that enjoy it. And that, um, you know, that the, the place is a little better because you were there, I think. Um, no, I was athletic, certainly athletic and competitive uh, as a young man but I just never got started with, with mountaineering and never did sort of did the technical aspects of it. So um, it just, it never became a thing for me. And I never really had the goal to summit Kilimanjaro and, you know, just it, it that was never sort of on the list. So I've been to Everest base camp um, from the Tibetan side and I did hike up uh, from the Nepal side to, as far as Tengboche. And we had intended to go farther. I actually got pretty bad altitude sickness. Um, it was the first time I'd really been at altitude and I pushed it too fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. so maybe that had something to do with it. Um, yeah. But no, I just never, the, the mountain side of things or, or being, trying to discover the sources of rivers and- Right. What about the Amazon jungle? How deep have you gone into- um, That, that- I wouldn't call it a weak point, but uh, haven't I haven't been um, in to visit any really remote uh, tribes. Uh, so you know, certain areas you'd say I'm really cool, and certain areas you'd say, eh. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's scary stuff, though. That's that's <clears throat> really uh, it takes a certain person to be able to hack their way through the Amazon jungle and start to tick those regions off. Yeah, the list. no, absolutely. I mean, um, a few friends of mine went earlier this year to uh, and visited a group of Yanomami um, people who hadn't been who hadn't been contacted in, in quite a while, uh, and that's you know especially kind of difficult during during COVID. Um, but yeah, their, their photos are, are amazing. And my girlfriend went to visit the Matsis tribe, uh, this past year. And, uh, also they, they're only contacted, you know, a couple times a year and, you know, their life, you know, it's really not my cup of tea, the lifestyle in there. It's very, very hot, human, a lot of, uh, insects. The life is really sort of boring, uh, when you're, you know, when you're, in, when you're in there, <laughs> Um, you know, a lot of remote villages are, are, are boring. The life is very, very simple. So you're excited to, to get there. And then you're like, well, okay, now what? <laughs> now yeah. what the, the thing um, that gets me is the, the fact that you can like, you know, scrape your knee and then die from it because you get an infection yeah. in the middle of the jungle. And that's, you know, how you end up exiting planet earth. Um, I, 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 you know, I did that once where, we were hacking across um, just, just it's a small island in the Phoenix Islands. So Phoenix is the middle group from Kiribati. Uh, one of them is where they think Amelia Earhart eventually uh, landed. Okay. And so um, it had been, this place had been inhabited, but was no more. And so we were just trying to get across through to Lagoon where a building was. And I had found a machete, but the machete was rusty. 
and I, you know, I'm just not that skilled sort of jungle hacker. So I was thrusting and I was thrusting downward instead of across, like away from me. Yeah. And I thrust downward and I cut my own knee with a rusty machete. Oh, no. Um, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't the worst cut, but it was deep enough that it was kind of serious. I had to really, really pay attention. Uh, you know, we were weeks away from anywhere that could provide help. So I was really careful with a lot of antibiotics and, and, uh, yeah. So I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary when you're in that situation and you realize I really on Peter the first, it's really going to be five days before anyone, even the, even if you diverted the closest ship, it's five days. That's wow. not, you're, you're no good. Or being underwater near Baker Island in the Pacific. I was with, um, that's a U.S. owned island. So I had, we had to bring fish and wildlife people. And the fish and wildlife people were doing samples of corals and fish, uh, which means we go diving. And, and this is a very rickety kind of, kind of boat. So that was really sketchy, but we're diving down there and they're shooting these fish. So the fish are bleeding and the sharks are circling. Yeah. And so as this, you know, you, you, you realize you're not supposed to panic when you're diving, but when you see all these, all these <laughs> sharks in the stomach, about a hundred sharks circling around you and you realize where you are, and then there's no one nearby to, to help and and the boat you're on isn't isn't very sturdy in and of itself and i was a little i was i, was, I felt my breathing i was going to use all my oxygen under the water there yeah right we decided to close to cut the dive off and and uh, surface early there were so many sharks uh, on that wow. one baker <clears throat> island's an interesting one was that used during world war ii yeah, yeah, it was Baker and Howland uh, both. So they have the remnants of U.S. Uh, runways yeah. on them. Um, I think uh, Baker was a little more paved than than Howland, but really inhospitable places that only were populated during during World War II. So there's a sort of lighthouse and and uh, the remnants of an airfield and and really nothing else. And you're supposed to have fish and wildlife clearance to even go and land there. And so few people do that the fish and wildlife people come with you if you're gonna if you're gonna go. They're like, okay, well, we'll hop aboard because we don't even have budget to go there. And, and there's no like no one else wants to go there. Yeah, so that is extremely remote. Those those are kind of at the equator and at 180 longitude. So you can really say this, the middle of the Pacific. Yeah. And obviously on the equator, it's going to be really, really hot. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yes. but it's part, part of the U.S. It's not like landing in New York, as we said. Right, yep. right, right. That's what I'm going yeah, to say right. next time somebody asks, are you going to New York or are you going to Baker Island? <laughs> <laughs> Baker at least has a channel uh, cut in the reef so you can land. Howland doesn't have even have any channel, so you have to really judge the tides and try and... You remember Castaway when he couldn't, Tom Hanks couldn't get out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, it's like that. We, to get in and out, you have to... Uh, you have to get your zodiac over the coral. Coral is brutal too. Speaking yeah. of getting cut with infections, um, we were flipping the zodiac. Uh, me and three Fijian guys trying to get a seventy 
year old uh, woman, our one of our co-passengers trying to get her over the coral uh, and, the, and the boat was flipping. That was a really scary moment also. So yeah, a lot of these places, <coughs> hey, if, if we're easy, everyone would do it. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Do you know anybody that's been in North Sentinel Island? Uh, no, I know besides the guy that got killed. Right, uh, right, right. And I didn't yeah. and I didn't know him. And I just like shake my shake my head and say, why, you know, why are you so stupid? Right. Um, yeah. and it's not it's not it's one of the Andaman Islands. So there are several Andaman Islands that are off limits to um tourists, but these this okay. one has just got a particularly fierce <laughs> right tribe. Uh that even, you know, even during um even even post the tsunami, so that that tsunami, if you recall, really wiped out a lot of places. Yeah. When people, when the aid groups came looking at North Sentinel Island, guys came out of the woods firing bows and arrows at them. So yeah. like, well, okay, I guess they're <laughs> I guess they're all right. Um, but no, no, that it's not classified separately because it's part of the Andamans. The Nicobars are are separate. And that's like a 15, that was a 15 year project for me because of the bureaucracy uh, there. I finally, finally got back and, and made it there just two years ago um, when, when uh, Modi, who's the prime minister of India came and was trying to get reelected. So he made a lot of promises to them about opening up the economy uh, for tourism and things. And so they actually specified a set of places that, that foreigners could go. And they opened they opened up Car uh, Nicobar, which is one of the Nicobars, and had been denied to foreigners ever since like 1950. Oh wow! So I spent one of the one of the worst two weeks of my life was spent trying to fight Indian bureaucracy. 15 years before, uh, going they kept shuttling me from office to office, then shuttling me back to New Delhi, uh, and the, like the the top moment the climax of the story was when i was you know had been sitting all day in stacks of paper and it was like levels of dante's inferno in this government office in delhi and finally this guy agreed to see me he was a senior guy in the sort of quiet office he had a he had a computer on his desk that wasn't even plugged in you know so this is it's just comical uh, and and so the guy said, well, what can I do for you? And so I guess this was the moment I had been waiting for and I told him my story. And then the, the aide came in and to stop the, stop the meeting and, he's, and he asked, well, what's the resolution of, of this? And the senior guy turned to him and said, this man has kind eyes, like John Travolta. Let's give him what he wants. <laughs> <laughs> thank you there we go <laughs> well so yeah so then so then i took that back flew all the way back to port blair and the andamans and i said well i've got the i've got the um you know the the okay from indian state department or whatever foreign you know internal ministry i've got their clearance from security and so i was just i was in and then they said well you know you have to go to the local police station and then I went to try and find the local police station, which took all day because they moved the building. And then, so it was sort of five or 6 p.m. and supposed to be on the helicopter the next day. 
but I still didn't have this official permit. Now I'm sitting with the chief of police in the next you know, stage of this odyssey. And the chief of police is just handing the permit to me across the table. And some guy, like the door opens and some guy lean, comes over and whispers, leans over and whispers in his ear. And he, his face changes. And then he takes the permit back and then he reaches over and grabs my passport and takes it away. And so what had happened was the national people had given me their approval, but then the local Mumbai branch of what is kind of the FBI had said no. And if, if uh, Mr. Vili has started his travel, then bring him back as soon as possible. Wow. And so the guy took that to mean send me off of the Andaman Islands, like fly me back to the mainland. And so he took my passport. So basically was going to detain me and send me like I was being deported instead of getting my permit. Wow. So after that, I just, I flew away. And then 15 years later, I came back and it was, it was open. It was still kind of a hassle, but I, I finally made it. Wow. That's unreal. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, um, I imagine. I imagine you've had many of these conversations over the yeah, course of your life, <laughs> and then these experiences. That's, yeah, that's part of it. Is the ability to just, you know, smile and persevere. I guess you have to yeah. be born with kind eyes, like John Travolta. Yeah, that's it. That's a good yeah. quality. Well, there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely a, a personality that goes with this. I mean, you need to be prepared for uh, really tough situations. Your plans just completely crumbling. Don't have uh, as you're on the cusp of experiencing them. Um, and and um, the, fur the further you go, like those things, they bother me, um, but they used to feel like the whole world was ending because mm -hmm. you really set this goal and it wasn't happening. Right. I feel like you will never, ever get back there. And, and um, so I learned, I learned that usually you do get back there. You just have to be patient and wait. There'll be another day. There'll be another chance. Uh, in, in fact, it reminded me of the very first time I was traveling around Europe. I was like 20 years old on a Eurail pass. And it was sort of the end of the day and I went running to the Vatican uh, to try and go in, but I didn't, I didn't know the rules. I was just this young American. I was wearing shorts and you, you're not allowed to go inside wearing shorts. And I protested and they, you know, they said, no, I, I thought I was special. And I thought <laughs> this is the last chance I will ever have to go to Vatican. And yeah, I've been back to Rome a few times. And yeah, right, right. <laughs> that's Vatican an easy one. A few yeah. times, I just remember to wear pants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. an easy one. Um, all right, Charles, uh, we, we want to thank you for coming on today. We do have a rapid fire round that we're going to get into. Uh -oh. Be before yeah. we do, though, uh, why don't you tell us uh, your website where people can join the rankings? Um, I'm going to start plugging away. I plugged a little bit. I'm still ranked as a couch potato. I don't think that's going to change. I'm still I have I have a few more places that I'm going to plug in. But I do like that. Uh, the people at the lower end, I guess, are considered considered couch potatoes. Yeah, that That's, was a, that was all, something uh, I thought of a long time ago and never have changed. It's motivational. <laughs> it it sure is, yeah. Because in my own little personal circle, I don't think anybody would call me that. Right. <laughs> but compared to the rest of the people on MTP, I uh, I barely have gotten off the couch. So that that is humbling. 
uh, you, you know. I'll give you some ideas of, of more things to do. But yes, yeah, sure. So MTP, uh, probably the, the easiest way in is to start with the website. The website is mtp.travel. Um, and then on the website, you have the links to download the apps. We have apps in iOS for iPhone uh, or iPad, and then we have Android uh, apps. Or you can just search on the, you know, on the um, on the Apple Store or on the Play Store uh, for Google, um, and search under MTP Extreme Travel, and you'll find the apps. Awesome. The apps are good for uh, when you're on the go. They notify you when you've arrived somewhere and can check in. Uh, and they, you know, not just the regions of the world, but all the World Heritage sites, and even the top top beaches, places like the top uh, restaurants, top hotels. Uh, so if you're, even if you're um, more an epicurial uh, person, yeah, uh, or or you know you. Some people just want to travel differently. So scuba, scuba diving places. So those, they, it, it knows where you are. It's the difference between a phone and a website. And so it helps check you in. The website's a little easier for travel planning. So we have something called the trip builder where you can uh, build your whole journey and it shows you the routings from place to place. Um, but yeah, come on in and, and join the ranks of the most traveled people. Yeah, right. I'm curious awesome. to see how I, I did. My my brother-in-law will really appreciate the golf courses one. Yeah, we just used the Golf Digest uh, top 100 worldwide, uh, and so some of those, you know, are are private. They're like Cyprus, okay. Cyprus or Monterey Peninsula. Those are you know tough to get onto. Yeah. So it's uh, it's not just a matter of of uh, traveling to the golf courses and paying. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta be. You gotta know some people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Charles, are you ready for this rapid fire round? I don't. I don't know. I'm, but ready as I'll ever be, I guess. <laughs> I'm a little All worried. Right. There's only five questions, so it's not too bad. And <laughs> you can think. Uh, you, the response could be as long as you want. We just ask that you respond quickly. Okay. So, first question is: What is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word travel? Uh, geography. Perfect. Which travel book has had the biggest influence on your life? The Rand McNally Road Atlas. That is a travel book. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what is one practical thing travelers can do right now to enhance their next travel experience? Uh, 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 they can Google it. Google, Google the destination and just start reading uh, as much as you can about the place in advance. Try and download and the MTP app. Well, download the MTP app. I, that, that. Uh, thank you. <laughs> the thing that'll most enhance that particular travel experience. But um, I would. So my philosophy on going to a new place is to try and to, in terms of researching, is to plan it out like you like every minute is accounted for, right? But then throw like that it. away. Oh. It's a really really think through. Okay, if I'm if I'm here, how long does it take to get to that next place? And do it as if you were just this hyper organized person, and then land on the ground, and then just evaluate what you see. Like, oh, well, I'm hungry for this. Okay, I, I I researched all these different places, and I know how I can get from here to there, and then I can do these other things in this order. Or it's raining, so let's not do the 
you know, the outdoor hike that we thought we would do. And instead, let's go to this museum or whatever else it may be. You, you'll make much better decisions, when you, but you have to think it through to that really anal level of, you know, every minute, plan it down to the minute, but then throw that all away. It's kind of um, <laughs> a little counterintuitive, but I find that that works for me. And also, if you're planning down to the minute, you get very, very into it. And so you start really, really thinking about it and learning and visualizing yourself being there. And that I think that makes it much more satisfying rather than just kind of stumbling around seeing what you see. If you really have thought, really pictured yourself there beforehand, then you're very um, excited to actually, uh, you know, see the real place when you get there. I agree with that. I agree with that. I like that a lot. Um, tell us one thing travelers should not do. Uh, yell. <laughs> All right. Yeah, don't don't argue. Don't argue with people uh, if you want to get your way. It never, it never ever works. No, don't never stop and say, do you know who I am? Really try and put yourself in their shoes. Um, you know, you can be persistent and, and specify what it is that you want, but recognize what they have to do in order to assist you and be pleasant about it. You know, this is true, whether you're in a, you know, in an airport, um, a lot of things like this happen in airports or in, um, in immigration, a lot of things like this happen in immigration. Uh, when, when you need to get through somewhere and someone's telling you you can't, that can rile up a lot of uh, emotion. Yeah. Um, or at a hotel check-in or wherever, wherever it may be, uh, just try and keep your cool. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And, I agree with that very much. Sympathize yeah. with the other, other person. <laughs> And last question is, what is one piece of advice you'd give to yourself 10 years ago? Uh, take your time. The, 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 uh, you, there's, there will always be another chance, whether it's getting into the Vatican or on Peter the First Island uh, or the Nicobars. They, uh, it'll come around again. All right. Love it. Love it. Charles, Charles thanks again for joining yeah. us today. Hey, it's a pleasure. Uh, it was my birthday yesterday. So... Oh. Uh, you're catching me on the morning after. Yeah. <laughs> oh, happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's very nice to meet you and good luck with, uh, with the podcast. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thanks, Charles. Thank you. All right. Bye now. So how do you fare? I'm a backpacker. Uh, MTP locations. I'm at 64. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm, so I'm, I'm right there with you. I, and I figured we would be the same. We've, have a lot of the similar travel styles. We're not going to any obscure islands. I'm a backpacker. I'm at 72, so a little bit better than you. Yeah. But, well, I um, think that's because you got more states. <laughs> I do. How many United States do you have? How many of the states? Uh, I think only have like 30. Okay. I'm. I think I'm. I'm up to 36. So okay. Not too many more than yeah. you. Yeah. So I that think makes you sense. Me, uh, with a few more countries, what are you up to? Like 18 countries or something total? Uh, of UN countries, yeah. And I'm up to I think 14 total. Um, yeah. Yep. Just a few more regions. So it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I, I, it is, I it is fun. Like, I like it. Yeah. Because, so if it was just how many countries have you been to, that would be kind of boring. But because it it forces you to dive into the location a little bit more and get to know it geographically speaking a little bit more, it, it, it's pretty awesome. Like it's a learning tool as well. It's not just, it how, it's, it's not about your yeah. travel data. It's about 
learning the geography a little bit. And so and I think it's really fun. If you are a fan of the Wordle spinoff Wordle, mm-hmm. this is a good one to help you learn some of those just to like see where they are. And if you have, or vice versa, Wordle will make you think about those next trips. Check out Wordle, whatever. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> do you still play that? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I fell off. I need to get back into it. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the show. If you want to contribute in a financial way, you can do so by clicking the link in the show notes here and buy us a coffee. It could be as little as a dollar and we put it into the subscriptions. You know, we have Zoom subscriptions, podcast hosting subscriptions, and so it just goes towards that and really helps us on the back end to continue doing the show. Um, other than that, we, we encourage you to share it if you do like us enough to do that and want to talk about these you know cool travel guys that you listen to. And if you don't want to do any of those things and you just want to continue to listen in the shadows, we also appreciate that and we appreciate you as well. So thank you for however you choose to proceed with the Travelers Blueprint podcast uh, and tune in next week.